And I thought maybe we'd go back a little bit because I know that you never really expected, wanted, or imagined that you would take over from Jeff Bezos and become the CEO of Amazon. So I thought before we even get into it, tell us the story. What happened? Well, first, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I've been in Amazon for 25 years, and I prior to doing this job, I was uh, I, I started and was part of the team that managed AWS since its inception, and I loved that job, and I wasn't really looking to do something different, and I also didn't really think that Jeff was ever going to do something different in the time that I worked there, and so I just wasn't thinking about it, and uh, he wrote me a note and said that he wanted to talk to me on the phone, which is somewhat unusual. Um, you know, normally he just writes me with what he wants. And, and so uh, we got on the phone and he said that he was, he had been thinking about it for a while and he was thinking about doing something different, but would only do it if I was willing to take on the CEO role. And I was surprised. And I, I spent most of the first part of that conversation really asking if he was sure, um, uh, if he wanted to, to make a change. And, uh, He'd clearly been thinking about it, and I was very flattered. I asked him if I could talk about it with my wife, uh, you know, all the decisions so I you made. Weren't, you, didn't, you weren't going to say yes immediately? I, I have learned the hard way in my life that when I have not made key decisions with my wife and I've made them myself, they have not worked out well. <laughs> Including where we chose to live in Seattle when we first moved. We, we drove all the way across the country. I picked out this place myself when I was working there for a couple months before we both moved. We got in the apartment, my wife looked around and started to weep. And so, you know, I, I learned that it's important to make those decisions together. And we actually went to dinner that night. It was right in the middle of the pandemic, and it was pouring in Seattle, and it, was, it just happened to be our date night. And we went to this place we'd, only, we'd never been to before and never have been since, where they had these little huts for each table. And we sat in there, and it was pouring rain, and we were the last ones to leave. They finally said, you need to leave. Um, but we, we had a long conversation about it, and she was very supportive, as she always um, is. And, and I said, yes, and I, you know, I'm flattered and, and aware of what a big responsibility is. Okay, so here we are, almost a year and a half later. Is this anything of what you expected was going to happen? You got this job in the middle of the pandemic. Um, the company was in super growth mode and trying to build out to, to, to deal with uh, all the consumers out there. The stock was through the roof, and here we are. Yeah, a lot has happened in the last few years that I'm not sure people anticipated. And, you know, if you just look in 2020... Our retail business grew 39% year over year on a $245 billion annual run rate, which is unprecedented. And it forced us to make decisions in that time uh, to spend a lot more money and to go much faster in building infrastructure than we ever imagined we would. We, we built a, a physical fulfillment center footprint over 25 years that we doubled in 24 months. And we made that decision. Even though we, know, we knew we might be overbuilding because it took two years to build fulfillment centers at that time. And you had to make, it was hard for us to imagine what 21 was going to be, let alone 22. But we decided that we were going to shade on the side of, of consumers and sellers who didn't want to be constrained. And, and so that was a big um, decision that we made. And then, you know, this time last year, it looked like we were coming out of the pandemic. And, and then Omicron happened and the war in Ukraine happened. And inflationary environment that we're in happened and you know now a very uncertain economy and so those were things i mean there, there are issues that not just amazon is dealing with most companies are dealing with a number of these issues in some sort and so it, just looking at what 
you know, how consumers are adapting to the environment is one of the things we're trying to figure out. When we see consumers right now, uh, you know, being very thoughtful about how they spend, trying to stretch their dollars. That's why if you look at, they're looking for deals, they love stocking stuffers and discretion. Have you seen a shift? I mean, this last, you know, Thanksgiving, Friday? Yeah, I mean, you see, it's very clear that consumers, they're spending, but they're being careful about trying to stretch their dollars. So they, you know, we spent a lot of time having millions of deals available for Black Friday and Cyber Monday in the last, you know, the Turkey Five that people call it. And people care a lot about getting a bargain right now. And they, you know, they, they were attracted to stocking stuffers in, a, in an even more pervasive way than normal. In discretionary categories like uh, computers or electronics or TVs, you see people trading down in models just to try to get more for their money. And so that, you know, it's why we spend so much time with our third-party seller, sellers uh, and selling partners uh, having a really broad array of selection. And we did a bunch of advanced inventory buying to make sure we were in stock on things. And we worked really hard on having great deals. And, you know, you have to make sure that you do a great job getting items to people reliably and quickly. And in difficult and uncertain economies, we've found over time that consumers are very careful about who they choose to partner with. They go with people and companies that are going to take care of them and that are going to provide a great customer experience. And that has always been something that we have focused very squarely on. You recently announced layoffs at the company. This is first in a very, very long time. Um, and it's still in process. So what does that look like to you? And, and also, when do you think you realized that this was going to be needed? Because I was going back and watching some old interviews of you even back in September, and I think you thought at that point maybe it would be no increase, no increase in hiring, but probably not going in reverse. Yeah, you know, this is the time of year we do our operating planning, and it's really we've been doing it over the last four months or so, and I've, I've probably gone through, along with the senior team, 50 or 60 of these operating plans. And Are these the, six, the famous six-pagers? They are all six pages in the body and then an appendix. Um, yeah, and... <laughs> How long is the appendix allowed to be? You know, there is no limit to the appendix. <laughs> and people take advantage of that lack of a limit. Um, but uh, but you know, they're very thoughtful. It's a, it's a much better way to go through information, in my, period, in my opinion, than, than through PowerPoint, where you just don't get into the detail. And uh, in any event, we've been going through it. And it's a time of year where our leaders look at where they want to spend resources and where they should adjust. And, you know, this year we had the lens of a very uncertain economic environment as well as our having hired very aggressively over the last several years. And I think as we went through our plans, you just started seeing, um, you know, over the months, pretty pretty similar trends where uh, the economy was, was more uncertain. We were seeing things that were different from what we'd seen before. And we just felt like we needed to streamline our costs. And, and our goal really in how we've gone through the operating plan has been to... Um, very, very thoughtfully, but yeah. um, uh, um, uh, but thoroughly go through the plans and make sure that we, where we can, we streamline and cut costs, but at the same time, we don't compromise on the key strategic long-term bets that we think can change the company. And that's how we've tried to view these operating plans. And just as we've gone through them, as I said, you started to see some trends and we started to realize that... Um, some of our cost structure, when you look at different sensitivities, some of our cost structure was out in front of where we thought we wanted to be. And 
we made the incredibly difficult decision. At first, you're right, one of the things we did, you know, was to, to pause incremental hiring. But as we went through the plans, we realized we needed to, to be more slim on some of our resources. And if, you could go back and, if you could go back and do the big expansion during the pandemic again, what do you think? It's, it's a really interesting question. I mean, and it's, it cuts across a, f- a few different dimensions. I mean, there's, there's the actual infrastructure build-out and then there's people expansion. And I think on the infrastructure build-out, given what we knew at that time, given how long fulfillment centers were taking, given that we're going to always shade on the side of customers, I would have done it again. I think it was the right decision. I think the team made the right decision. And we knew when we were making it that we might be overbuilding, but we knew we, we would grow into it, and that's happening. And, and um, I think we're going to always err on the side of customers. I think on the people side, you know, it's when, when businesses are doing well, and we had a number of businesses that were growing really quickly, one of the reasons that we were growing quickly was that we were doubling down on the things that were working. And, when you know, knowing some of the unusual circumstances that have arisen over the last year and a half were hard to know and uh you know i think so i I don't necessarily think it was the wrong thing to have been doubling down because we were growing so well and we had so many ideas that we thought were good for customers and good for the business but i think it's a good lesson i think for everybody when you're hiring even when things are going really well that it's it's good to think about if there's some kind of sudden change even one that you just have a little bit of a hard time imagining would you like the incremental headcount that you're adding at that right. time, or do you want to be a little bit more conservative? I want to talk about people in a moment, because there's, there's, there's a question we should talk about labor. But I, I want to ask you about one of the units, because it's a unit that I think a lot of us know and maybe have in our home, which is devices, these Alexas, Echo, all over. And that's one of the businesses, uh, also Kindle, famously, uh, where some of these reductions are happening. And some of the reports over the years suggest that at certain times, this was a group that was losing uh, as much as $5 billion back in 2018. I don't know what it was losing, losing this year that led you there. But the sort of the whole dream of Alexa and, and Echo, I thought, was that everybody would have these in their homes and therefore they would then buy lots of stuff on them. Has that not been realized? Well, you know, you have to be careful what you believe in what you read. You, know, you probably know this well, and and, and uh, you know, it, um, you know, I, I think there was some mis- there was yep. some misreporting that was that was going on the last few weeks. But uh, you know, I actually, I'm I'm really pleased and optimistic with our devices business. Of course, devices. There's a lot of individual devices that are part of our devices division. In the case of Alexa, you know. We, we have a couple hundred million endpoints that customers are using. It has very significant traction. And it's also driving a lot of e-commerce shopping You know that sometimes it's hard to capture. You have to look at, at both the direct commerce it's, it's driving, and, of course, you can account for that lots of different places. But then also there are a lot of actions people take that lead them to buy, like putting things in shopping right. lists and things like that. So Alexa is, is driving. It's got... A lot of traction in endpoints is driving a lot of e-commerce. If we were trying to build a smart, the best smart speaker, that would be a different investment than what we're trying to do, which is to build the world's best personal AI or assistant. That's a much more expansive investment, and we really believe in that vision, and we like the traction of where we are. But it's not a couple-year vision. It's a multi-year vision, as a lot of the big bets that we make are. You know, if you look at the other devices, you look at Fire TV, we've never had more people using Fire TV. It's, it's the way that a lot of people uh, access and manage their streaming video content or 
you look at Ring or Blink, which you know are in the camera and doorbell and security space, we're category leaders and grown incredibly quickly and going to be very big, profitable businesses for us. You mentioned the Kindle Reader or our tablets drive a lot of downstream purchases of books and other items. So I like a lot of the things that we're doing in devices. I like the results in a lot of them. I'm optimistic about them long term. There were some areas where, you know, some of the experience we were, we were, um, we were pursuing in the devices space had some traction, but we didn't see them being really big needle movers. And in those cases, we, we either wound those down or slowed those down. Um, to streamline a little bit as part of that cost exercise. Let's talk about the people of it, though, um, and, and, the, and this labor issue, because it's something that a challenge you've been confronting. A lot of other companies in America have been dealing uh, with um, the labor movement. It's happening at, at your firm as well. Uh, last month, uh, workers at a warehouse in Albany voted no yeah. on a union. Um, here in Staten Island, they voted yes, and uh, there's, there's a bit of a battle going on there. But what do you see as the state of this dynamic yeah. Right now. Well, you know, in the U.S., there's been only one one of our facilities that has voted for a union. It's, it's the Staten Island one you mentioned. There are a lot of irregularities in that vote, which is why um, there are objections and it's working its way through the legal process. The last two, a sortation center in Staten Island and the Albany facility you mentioned, have voted against the union. And this is also interesting. It's one of one of many topics in this country that are very hard to discuss and debate. In fact, you probably saw that the NLRB is suing Amazon over comments I made in our last interview in April. Yes. Where, <laughs> to be careful about what I say, I guess, but, but where I stated that we didn't favor unions because they were more bureaucratic and limited agility, which I thought was fairly non-controversial and straightforward, but I guess you're not allowed to say that, or, or some people think you're not allowed to say that. But it's, it, the truth is that employees get to choose. They always have had the choice. And uh, it's not up to us, it's up to them. And what we tell our employees in our fulfillment centers is that we think they're better off without a union for a few reasons. One is we try to hire people who we empower. If they find ways that they can make the experience better for customers or their fellow teammates, they can just go fix it. You know, they, it, they don't have to go through a union. It's not bureaucratic. It's not slow. It's not a whole pro- it, They can just go fix that. And we think that that's pretty empowering and a great way to, to work. And I think it's nice to be able to have a direct relationship with your manager. We like to hear from all our employees as opposed to having it filtered through one or two voices. And I also think when you have unions, you often end up with this us versus them mentality that's not as productive when you're trying to invent and, and, and trying to accomplish what we are on the scale we are. And so, you know, I think if you want to operate in the same structure we have without unions, you have to have compelling benefits. And it's why we championed the $15 minimum wage a few years ago. It's now up to $19 an hour um, starting uh, hourly salary and full health insurance and 401k and up to 20 weeks of parental leave. And, you know, we also have this career choice program where our employees in the fulfillment center, if they want to get an advanced education or go to college, will pay for it. And so I think that set of benefits has been, you know, they've accomplished that without a union. They're compelling, and I think it's part of why they keep voting. But let me ask you about this push-pull. A federal judge uh, last week uh, filed what some people described as a sweeping national, quote, cease and desist order against Amazon for interfering with the rights of workers forming unions. Um, and it's expected that the NLRB will soon certify this, this uh, labor a union's right to, to represent in, at JFK 8. Is that, gonna ch- is, is that decision going to change, you think, the way Amazon has interacted with its workers in these union issues? Well, I th- you know, my own opinion on 
where we are with that legal process is that we're far from over with it. You know, I think that it's going to work its way through the NLRB. It's probably unlikely the NLRB is going to rule against itself. Um, and that has a real chance to end up in federal courts. You know, and so I think that process will take time. But we, it's not going to change how we interact with our employees. We, you know, we, uh, we're passionate about trying to have um, our jobs and our fulfillment centers be um, great jobs that people can continue to grow out. If you look at how many people just in our fulfillment centers, th- about 25,000, 30,000 have been promoted in the last year or two. They're, they're, you know, they're going to be safe jobs. They're safe jobs. They're solid-paying jobs with great benefits, and we're all part of trying to um, help customers' lives be better every day. Is there, is there any company you think out there that, that that works with a union that does it well? I don't know. What do you think? Touche. Um, let me ask you about something else that's uh, in the headlines. And uh, it's, a, it's a controversial topic, as you very well know. Um, Kyrie Irving um, on social media uh, pushed out uh, this, this Hebrew to Negroes Wake Up Black America uh, film and book. Uh, this is a film and book that is sold on Amazon. And as you know, he was suspended uh, from the NBA. And you've gotten letters from uh, Mila Kunis and uh, Deborah Messing and all sorts of people in Hollywood. The ADL has come out and asked you to take this book off the site. What's your view? Well, trying to decide um, which content has, you know, which, which content contains hate content to an extent enough that we don't provide access to customers is one of the trickiest issues that we deal with at the company. And, you know, in some cases, it's more straightforward. When you have content that actively incites or promotes violence or teaches people how to do things like pedophilia, those are easy. We don't allow those, and and those are straightforward um, decisions. When you have content whose primary purpose is not to uh, espouse hate or ascribe negative characteristics to people, that is much trickier and a very slippery slope if we take a lot of those out of the store. And, uh, you know, we have hundreds of millions of customers with lots of different viewpoints. And, and uh, you know, inside the company, we won't tolerate hate or discrimination or harassment. Um, but we also recognize, as a retailer of content to hundreds of millions of customers with lots of different viewpoints, that we have to be willing to allow access to those viewpoints, even if they are objectionable and even if they differ from our own personal viewpoints, if you're going to serve that number of people. So, what's your point? so I'm Jewish. Yeah. I don't like it. I'll be honest. Yeah. I, I don't like it. I'm worried about anti-Semitism. I'm worried about what we're seeing across the, across the country, across the globe. Um, I think some of it does. It may not incite violence in the moment, but could, could lead to it eventually. I, I'm, look, I'm Jewish too, and I'm worried about anti-Semitism, and it's you know, I find uh, several parts of that content very objectionable. But I think that you have to have principles if you're going to manage something as large as, as we do with hundreds of millions of customers. And, um, again, to me, you have to be willing to allow viewpoints that are different from your own if the primary purpose of the content is not hate. Um, you guys had said that you might put a notice on some content, including this. Are you still planning to do that? Well, you know, we've, we've been looking at it. It's there. Again, it's, these are, as I mentioned earlier, they're tricky issues. We have a pretty significant group of people, a panel that, that looks at each piece of content when there's 
uh, an angle where we have to explore whether we should, whether we should remove it. And it's, it's a pretty involved process, and it's hard to scale. And then if on top of it, you decide that you're going to build another process where you, you have to evaluate which items get disclaimers or not, it's just very hard to scale. And um, there are a lot of books and a lot of pieces of content that have mentions or, or, or parts of that um, content where people would want those disclaimers. And we don't want to have a store where every page has a disclaimer. And the reality, too, is that we have very expansive customer reviews, and for the for the books that have a lot of attention or, and have a lot of public attention like this, customers do a pretty good job of warning people when there's objectionable content. What do you think of him getting that suspended? What's that? What do you think about him getting suspended? Who getting suspended? Ky- Kyrie Irving. Well, I th- and my understanding is that was a, a Nets decision right. more, more than an NBA decision, and I don't know all the details around why they ultimately decided to do it, but you know, that's a decision I'm sure Joe Sy and the team thought carefully about. Um, let's talk about media. We just spent some time with Ben Affleck. He's got a big picture coming out uh, yeah. on your service uh, this, this spring. Sure. Uh, you've, you've invested deeply uh, in the film side of this. Also, Thursday Night Football is now it. What do you see that component part of Amazon becoming? I think when it first started, people thought it was a way to, you know, avoid churn for Prime or something else. But what's it becoming? Or what do you want it to be? Well, we're incredibly excited about what we're doing in the the streaming content space and just the success of Lord of the Rings and the success of Thursday Night Football. And just Thursday Night Football, if you look at it, it's, um, you know, people thought of have five, six million viewers. It's been more than double that. It's got 20% higher um, viewership in the 18 to 34 demographic, which is really important to a lot of um, different constituents, which is about 20% higher uh, than, than before and larger than any other NFL, NFL window for it. And so we're, we're really excited about it. And there, there are a number of parts to what we're trying to do with streaming media. The, the reality is that our, our prime video offering and all of that content uh, is a really important ingredient in when people choose to sign up for Prime or not. And it's always been something that's driven Prime subscriptions, but increasingly you see more and more people who are signing up to Prime because of the video content. So that's very attractive. And then when you when, you, when people sign up to Prime, even if they sign up from the video content, they tend to spend money with us in our um, stores, in our e-commerce offerings. And so I do think over time... We have opportunities uh, to make our prime video business, you know, a standalone business that has very attractive economics. We have, you know, a lot of um, video on demand. We have a, a channels program where um, a, a very large number of third-party media providers will ingest their content into our. Is that technology. what you ultimately want to be? You want to be the center of this? I think that we, what we want to do, is provide the world's best selection of streaming content for customers. But it's not supposed to be Netflix or Disney or something else or, or a Hulu we, Plus. We would like to offer, we'd like to give, customers would like to go to a place and find everything they want. Nobody wants to have to go to six, seven different places and it's part of what's attractive to our, our prime customers and being able to find all that selection. And for our third party media partners and channels, they get the benefit of all the investment we've made in deep learning and machine learning on the technology part and the viewing experience, but they also get access to our right. couple hundred million plus Prime subscri- subscribers to, si- to um, right. sign up subscribers. And that's been very attractive for them. And for our customers, being able to find it all in one place is very... Compelling. How big is sports rights? 
long term? I think sports, you know, as you know, we've been doing a lot more there, Thursday Night Football and UEFA and Champions League. And I think you'll continue to see us investing in sports. I mean, sports is such a unique asset. It's, it's you know, if you look every year at the most watched programs, sports often occupies 75% of those spots. And, and you know, they, they drive live engagement and they drive prime subscriptions. So I think you'll you should expect to see sports. You think Jeff Bezos is going to buy the Commanders? <laughs> you should ask Jeff that question. Have you talked to him about it? Dude, Jeff doesn't really consult with me on his investments. Will he have to get? No. Will he though have to get a waiver from the other NFL owners? Do you know about this? Is that true? Well, no. There's a question because of his role at Amazon whether he would need to get a waiver from the other owners because there could be a potential conflict. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the details of that, but I, I'm confident that whatever he, you know. If he chose to do something that space, he would obviously follow whatever the rules are. Do you, do you talk to him a lot? How often do you talk to him? I do talk to Jeff a lot. Uh, I, I talk to him, you know, probably about once a week or so. Uh, and, um, you know, I've had a long, uh, close relationship with Jeff for, for 22 years or so, 23 years. And I've worked, you know, I worked directly for him for about 20 before I, I did this job. And um, I really appreciate having the opportunity to um, to ask for his counsel and bounce things off of him. It's, it's very useful. Well, he, he, by the way, I don't think is going to be pulling an Iger. He thinks he looks like he's living his best life. And, and um, you, you're probably in a good position. Um, uh, two other things. Given the, uh, the challenges in the, in the space right now, um, what about the moonshots? You have a lot of money riding on things like Project Hyper. And uh, that, that's, a, that's another satellite. That's a satellite service. For example, um, what what Elon Musk is doing with Starlink. Do you think you continue to invest in those things? How does that shift? Well, I think it's a good question, especially right now. And and I I think that um, a lot of companies have different strategies for how they think about investments. And and there is no one right way to do it. But the way we think about strategic investments are we ask ourselves four questions. We ask, if we're successful, can it be big and move the needle at Amazon um, and have the right ROICs? Is it being well served today? Do we have a differentiated approach? And do we have some competence in that area? And if not, can we acquire it quickly? And if we like the answers to those questions, then we'll invest. Sometimes that process leads to investments that are more predictable. You know, I, I came to the company, we were books only. When we invested in music and video and electronics and toys and home improvement, that seemed, you know, uh, it, it didn't at the time seem obvious, but in retrospect, I think it was obvious. And, uh, you know, I think us investing in emerging geographies as we are now, it's one of our big investments, India and Brazil and Turkey and Mexico, it, you know, seems pretty straightforward. Or, you know, our business-to-business offering, which is Amazon Business, right. which is, you know, a huge investment area for us, which is already over $25 billion in, in um, gross merchandise sales, fairly obvious. Our grocery space, I think people understand that we're going to live in a world of, of omni-channel. I think those are, are, are kind of more predictable for people, but sometimes that process I mentioned yields investments that aren't as obvious. And, you know, I had a front row seat to the AWS experience where, you know, I, I led it since its inception and worked with the team to grow it and build it. And I, I watched the skepticism externally and internally about what we were doing there. And just think about how different Amazon would be and our future would be if we didn't have AWS. And so sometimes those, you know, we will invest in things that are pretty different if we like the answers to those questions. And I think, 
you know, if you look at Kuiper as an example, which is our low Earth orbit satellite that we're building, there's 400 million people in this world who don't have connectivity to the internet and to technology and, and access to information. And there's loads of governments that are going to need it too for intelligence and mapping and navigational pieces. And, and so we actually believe it has a lot of characteristics like AWS. It's very capital intensive. But there are, there, you know, I think there's a handful of companies that have the technical inventive aptitude and will and uh, and and the you know the I'll say the investment right. hypotheses to go after that. And so when I look at things like Kuiper or Zooks, which is our you know autonomous driving um, uh, ride hailing service, or or even Alexa, I have a lot of optimism about those bets. And I think that do I think every single one of them is going to be successful? The history of business, the history of Amazon suggests no. It's rare that every one of your right. of the big bets, but if even one of them actually becomes that fourth pillar on top of Marketplace and um, Prime and AWS, we're a different company. And I, I think this time, this next year or two with the economy, is going to test the long-term resolve of a lot of companies. And there are going to be a lot of companies who decide that they're going to basically stop doing anything that's not their core revenue-generating businesses. And by the way, it, it's a reasonable approach. But it's just not the one that, that we, we are trying to build a business long-term that allows all of us. And so what we're trying to do is streamline our costs in a bunch of different areas while at the same time making sure that we keep betting on the things that we believe long-term could change. Where does healthcare fit into all this? Because there have been a lot of experiments that have started and in some cases stopped. You've now made, making a new one. Um, what have you learned and what's the, what's the real prospect here? Well, I think part of what we've learned... Um, probably is not a surprise to anybody in this room, which is the the um, primary care health care experience in this country is, is, is very bad, and, and it's in dire need of being reinvented. And it's complicated, and it's hard, and, uh, and it's part of why I think a lot of people recognize it, and it hasn't happened yet. But, I, you know, I, I think that um, for a long time, our customers wanted us to have a pharmacy offering, yep. and, uh, and we've... we've um, built something there. We're still in the relative early days of continuing to add all kinds of functionality, but we like the start we're off to there. And, you know, Amazon Care started as an experiment, really just for our own company, about can we provide a better primary care experience. And people loved the the customer experience so much, I constantly kept checking, because it, it, it started in a group that um, was part of my organization in my last job, and I just couldn't believe the customer satisfaction scores. I kept asking if there were mistakes, but people so badly want a different experience. And I think in the same way that um, we've rolled our eyes when our parents said there were no color TVs, um, uh, and our kids roll their eyes when we say that we didn't have the internet or, or mobile phones, I think 10 years from now, people are going to not believe that the way you got primary care was that you made an appointment a month in advance, had to drive to the doctor's office, park, wait in reception for 20 minutes, wait in the So you the think 10 years? 10 years? I do. I th and I think that what, what care taught us, I don't think we had the right business model um, in, in what we were pursuing in care, which is why we decided I felt a lot of passion about you know starting it from scratch with a group of people, is that... Um, I love the company, and we're trying to build a business instead of customer experiences that outlast all of us. So, I, you know, I hope to do it for a while. Um, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine what else I'd be doing because I've been doing it for 25 years. Um, but, you know, before I, I came to Amazon straight out of graduate school, before I 
um, while I was in graduate school, I was helping manage a band, and I had this idea about a music management, you know, slash label idea. Maybe I would try selling music. I used to always tell people in my 20s that I wanted to be the commissioner of one of the major leagues. You know, 